Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. The latest policy announcement in the UK is that we're going to have a track and trace program come in that's going to cost £35 billion, so about $50 billion US dollars. This is after all of the vaccines and stuff. And anyway, I was just reflecting on this figure. And this, bear in mind, this is just one tiny part of the overall pandemic cost. This is just one element of the UK government's program. Putting aside all of the hundreds of billions in lost GDP and like all of the immeasurable non economic costs and just to put that figure into perspective right the other day i was watching the lord of the rings films with my family and there's an special extended edition of these films right and it goes into all of the like amazing 
things that had to go on to make this film. There's this huge orchestra. They had to get someone in to write this original score. And they had people employed full-time for months in this orchestra. And then they had top-of-the-range people, literally the best people in the world, who are musicians, actors, special effects people. It was just this colossal operation. And you watch all these documentaries and you just get a sense of these films are like really great artworks. They're some of the best films ever made. And you watch the documentaries about how they were made and you just get the sense of how much resource went into them. And in the final credits, it just goes on for minutes and minutes and minutes. People like all of these people that were employed in in this project. There's a team and it's like the collapse of this tower. And it's like a team of 20 people. And it's a scene that's 10 seconds long. So anyway, afterwards, I was looking up, how much did these films cost to make in total? And these films in the early noughties, they cost $281 million to make. So kind of reflecting on the things that you've said safe about under the gold standard art was a lot better. And we had these great artworks and in a fiat system, you can have lots of things that suffer that are like material, but also like lots of the artistic projects will suffer as well. I was just thinking that even if you adjust for inflation, just the cost of this single track and trace program, which is basically pointless you could make the whole Lord of the Rings set of films a hundred times over with that budget. And it's stuff like that that makes me think this is just such a colossal tragedy in terms of wasted human potential, like wasted human genius. That resource that's going into that specific project could be spent on other areas of healthcare, it could be spent on education, it could be spent on great artwork, it could be spent on great films like the Lord of the Rings. And just sort of seeing something like, okay, there's this huge operation, this is how much it costs. And this single little bit of our government program is worth a hundred times that. It just sometimes helpful to put these abstract numbers into perspective and just think about the colossal amount of resource that is being squandered on this entire uh, pandemic. So I just wanted to share that reflection. Yes, Peter, but I mean, won't you think about all the politicians' children that are going to have a lot of money because of all of the contracts that their parents are going to sign? Why don't you think about that? Why are you so selfish? Like, not only do you want to kill grandmas, but you also don't want the children of politicians to have money. Why? Uh, You know what? Is it just just because you want rich people to keep their tax money? That's what it is, right? Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's that's pretty much a knockdown case, actually. Um, Cameron's got to feed go his kids. I'll go voting right? Labour. <laughs> Cameron needs to feed his kids. That's exactly, uh, you know. Yeah, he needs a full-time orchestra paid for three years worth of uh, labourers <laughs> to run his mansion or whatever the equivalent. Uh, yeah, the amount of corruption that's going to come out of this, the, the amount of, it's already come out, most of it. Uh, well, not most of it, but a lot of it has come out and a lot is going to come. And I think it's it's amazing when you think about it as just a massive misallocation of capital from all kinds of productive avenues of uh, business where people used to work and produce and make things that other people wanted and enjoyed. And you shut down all that stuff and then you move all that capital and workers and office space and, well, nobody has offices anymore, but still laptops and uh, Zoom subscriptions. You transfer all of that capital to 
just all this health theater stuff, which is completely ridiculous. It's built on the principle of hysteria. You're always looking for something that scares more because the more scared people are, the more contracts you can get. So there's just such a strong incentive to continue to keep pushing the hysteria as well as to continue to profit from it. This is ultimately how I see this thing has developed. It was a golden opportunity for a lot of people to pounce on it. And then they all started reinforcing each other's narratives and drowning out any kind of other opposition. And now it's gone way beyond what anybody had expected. Like, I don't think they really imagined the economic destruction that's going to come out of this. I think it's going to be epic over the next few years watching what's going on. It's, it's going to be sad. So much waste and destruction, so much capital lost. Yeah, I was reflecting on this the other day. And I remember a video that I watched. It came out a few years ago. And it's about social media in general. It's a video called Look Up, and it went viral on YouTube. And it's about how people miss lots of their life when they're looking at their phone rather than engaging with the real world around them. And the basic premise of the video is it's this guy, and it shows you what happens when he has this serendipitous encounter with this woman on the street. So he's asking for directions, and he bumps into this woman, and they end up meeting for a coffee and then dating and then they get married. And then it goes through like the whole story of their life, how they spend like their whole life together and their retirement and stuff. And then at the end of the video, it shows you the counterfactual, which is like he was looking at his phone rather than asking for directions on the street. And it just shows the woman walking straight past him at the end. And in the first situation, because he asked for directions, he had this entire different life, this entire like great experience that profoundly changed him. And in the second situation, because he was looking at his phone, he missed out on this great, profound, life-changing thing. And the reason I thought of that is because I think that's such a good analogy for economics and economic loss in that it's such a tragedy. It's a real visceral tragedy when you have waste on such a scale as we're experiencing at the moment. But the problem is you can't see what would have happened. You can't see all the amazing dreams that were, would have been realized by people or all the amazing experiences people would have had. All the children would have, like, I remember when I was at school, you know, I had just such amazing experiences. It was like, cause I was so young and everything seemed exciting. Those were really great times. And I can just imagine, had I been born a few years later, I would have missed out on all of that. But no one would ever have known about it. We've deprived so many people of so much valuable, profound experience in their life. We'll never see what the counterfactual option is. That's part of the problem that we have as economists. Sometimes our arguments come across as really abstract. And we sometimes need to engage with how... It's not just about numbers. It's not just about, oh, we think that people should allocate capital to this thing or this thing. It's actually about the kind of Henry Hazlitt idea of the broken window. Like you never see the things that could have been the case. I'll share the video link in the chat. Just It's, it's not related to economics, but it, I think it's a really nice analogy for what you miss when uh, you make bad economic decisions and maybe something to share with people that are trying to understand how important it is to not deprive people of opportunities by undertaking wasteful interventions in the economy.
The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safeddean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with a nice colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Yeah, absolutely. I tend to think about that, about the 20th century in general. When I think about the 20th century, to try and imagine what would have happened if we had just stayed on the gold standard after 1914, or if something like Bitcoin was invented right then. And we just continued in a similar vein to what was going on in the previous uh, era. It sounds uh, insane, but I really think, just think about the opportunity cost of just how much waste has been created by central banking. As, as long as you're a statist, as long as you believe in the Keynesian garbage, you might think that some of that money was wasted. You might think that central banks do some harm and do some good. But if you think about it from the Austrian perspective, if you've taken the time to think of the implications of capital allocation by a central bank, well, then essentially it's all waste, more or less. And you can measure the waste in terms of the depreciation in the currency. So to think of what would have happened if we'd stayed on gold, let's not say that we had something with Bitcoin's number go up technology. If we just stuck to gold's moderate manual 1%, 2% per year, a number go up analog technology. It doesn't sound too impressive for Bitcoiners today, but it's enormous when you think about it adding up over a century. And then when you think about just all of that money being wasted to go to finance corrupt governments all over the world, spending it on all kinds of insane, stupid nonsense, all these wasteful bureaucracies of people getting paid to produce nothing, all the wars that they can finance endlessly, military spending and all bureaucracies and all private sector companies that survive because of government support. And then of course, just downright hyperinflationary graft in many cases, essentially an entire country's life savings just get wiped out. Think about all of these and then think about what would have happened in terms of the counterfactual. You know, Just think of all of that money having accumulated, think about all the costs of World War I and World War II, or maybe not all of it, you know, without fiat, we'd still have had wars probably, but they'd have been a fraction of the cost. So think about all the destruction that the wars have financed. Think about all the capital that was wasted. Think about all the lives, all the people, and then take all of that 
and then run a counterfactual where the world continues from 1914 with 1914 technology and free trade and hard money. And just imagine what the world would have looked like in 2020 in that case. Just imagine how things would have been different if all of that capital had been invested by its owners rather than allocated by central planners. If all of these insane communist regimes that destroyed their currencies many, many times over, if all of these regimes had been forced or had not existed, or instead of them, you'd had somebody who was at least nominally fiscally or monetarily responsible. If you had all that, it's astounding to think about what the implications would be. Like It's probably no exaggeration to say that the technology that we have today might have been here in the 80s, maybe 70s, maybe even 60s, maybe 50s. I can't imagine there still being the extreme poverty that we see in the world today. Like I think if you got rid of fiat money and replaced it with hard money, if anybody in the world could have a hard money, I don't see how you could live in a world in which anybody can't afford uh, basic infrastructure, the basic 20th century infrastructure of electricity running cold and hot water and sanitation. I think these things would be affordable for anybody. I think it doesn't matter how low your productivity is. If you are in a country where your productivity is very low, the, the lowest paid people in the world, if you look at the, some of the lowest wages in the world, it's, it's not like it's just destiny from God that these people have low productivity. You look at their economy and you'll see that they can't trade, they have high import tariffs. And so if you wanted to build any kind of capital there, it's really expensive to import the capital. And so because you don't import capital, people continue to have low productivity, entrepreneurs continue to fail, and nobody can accumulate capital. So uh, trade restrictions are one major issue. Inflation is another major issue. And if you remove those two things, things would be very different. If you didn't have these crazy governments inflating the money supply of all of these poor countries, and citizens in all of these countries could just access a hard money and could just trade with the rest of the world, there's no way that their wages would be as low as they are. And there's no way that they wouldn't have been able to save up after a century of the invention of um, all of these new technologies. There's no way that they wouldn't be able to save up for these things because these things have enormous increases on productivity. They massively improved your quality of life. The increase in trade barriers in the 20th century was to a large degree caused by fiat. Because when you had gold as money, most people didn't really worry too much about the balance of trade between different countries. If you bought things from another country, then you got stuff and you gave them gold. And they gave away stuff and they got gold. And so who wins from that? Obviously both, because they wouldn't have transacted with it. They wouldn't have done it. And it wouldn't cause any kind of systematic danger for your country or your neighborhood that you're buying things from abroad. But when the money itself is different in both countries and both countries have inflationary currencies where the value of the currency is oscillating, the distortions in the value of the currency are going to constantly distort the ability of people to to carry out trade. And so you're going to end up with all of these massive problems for governments, because when you're destroying your currency, 
everybody's trying to get rid of your currency. They want to replace it with other foreign currencies. So they start buying another currency and they start dumping your currency and they start buying things from abroad. They don't want to keep holding on to your currency. So they start importing things from abroad because they'd rather have hard assets. And so the importing makes your central bank run out of foreign reserves. And so how do you stop your bleeding of foreign reserves? You impose import tariffs or you restrict imports. So when you do that, the idea is in the mind of the horrific fiat economists of the 20th century, the central bank is losing money because our people are buying things from abroad. How do we stop that? Aha, let's stop people from buying things from abroad. Well, that will fix it. Well, no, because the reason that you were losing the foreign reserves is not because people just buying things from abroad. People can only buy as much money as they have. The reason that you're running out of foreign reserves is that uh, you've printed a lot of your currency and the value of your currency is declining and people expect the value to decline further. And so they're trying to get rid of it as much as they can. And the value of the currency is declining and your foreign reserves are what you use to settle your trades with international uh, partners. And so everybody in your country has an incentive to redeem their fiat tokens from your central bank. They have an incentive to go and redeem them from the central bank for foreign reserves. That's why you run out of foreign reserves. It's the same reason that countries would, or governments or central banks would run out of gold under a gold standard. It's not because of anything anybody else does. It's because the central bank issued too many claims on its gold. So the trade restrictions of the 20th century started with World War I and they were massively exacerbated in the 1930s because of the economic depression and the currency crisis that was happening then. And it continued to face all of these problems and it continued to get worse up until really the 70s when a lot of countries learned the lesson and uh, they just couldn't continue with it. But it's still pretty bad. Uh, There's still a lot of custom duties all over the world and a lot of tariffs. And it's just, uh, it's it's insane what an enormous waste it is. You know, you're taxing people for importing uh, the goods that they need to survive or the goods that they need to produce capital. The, The notion of putting a tax on capital is just absolutely incredible. It's so destructive. It's like pouring sand into your engine. You want people to have as much capital as they can possibly get. And putting a tax on it is just not going to help. It's going to do the exact opposite. It's really amazing. I hope to live long enough to be able to see what a Bitcoin world looks because it's really going to be very, very different. It's going to be a lot of things that people take for granted as just uh, normal parts of our uh, planet and our world, a lot of those things are going to just disappear, in my opinion. I could be wrong, of course. I have been wrong before. And it can happen. But I think there's a lot that Bitcoin fixes. On that point, Safe, I came across an interesting graph the other day about how you were saying just now that the amount of global trade fell during the 1930s. And I found a graph that shows the percentage of exports as a percentage of global GDP. And if you look at it, it shows that during the 19th century, despite the fact that 
they really didn't have very advanced technology at all. You were like relying on boats going around the world, very slow speeds. The level of international trade as a percentage of GDP was still something like 15% all the way through to like 1900. And then it kind of goes up towards the 1930s, as you say, and then it just like rapidly falls. And it doesn't come up again to the levels that you saw in about 1920 until, as you were saying, like the late 70s, which is pretty incredible given how much logistical progress, technological progress there's been. The reason I was looking at this, I was doing a bit of writing on why global inflation has been so low since the 1990s. And basically my argument for it is that it's all to do with globalization because there's been such benefits from free trade internationally that basically all of the bad monetary policies have been offset by China entering the global market and East Asia trading with the rest of the world. So there's been like a huge jump in international trade as a percentage of GDP in the last 30 years. But going back before that, like when you had 1970s stagflation, there was still pretty low levels of international trade going on as a percent of global GDP. So basically, when the US was printing all of this money, it had to live with the consequences of that decision. Whereas what's happened afterwards is they haven't really changed the policies very much. They've just benefited from this massive supply side boom from China liberalizing, entering the WTO in 2001. It's quite an interesting graph. I'll just share it in the chat. It supports very much the narrative that you were just giving about how fiat economics impacted on repression of international trade beyond what you would expect. You would expect it to balloon as technology became more advanced, but uh, it, it actually fell quite a lot. So I'll absolutely, share it in the chat. Absolutely. In the late 19th century, the boats that they were using were much smaller than what we have today. If you look at modern shipping containers, it's a marvel of engineering and capitalism. It's one of those things that I write about in the Principles of Economics textbook because it's amazing the degree of advancement and just how big the boats have become and how advanced they are. And also the amazing specialization, the amazing standardization of the shipping container. The fact that the shipping containers now are standard size all over the world and they're easy to put into the large ships and they're dropped on top of each other. They fit perfectly. The ships are designed to hold them perfectly. And then they're immediately just transferred onto a truck. And then the truck moves with them and takes them. Once they hit land, the truck continues the journey. The degree of specialization that this allows is, is incredible. And the fact that while this technology was being developed during the 20th century, the level of trade around the world was declining and the percentage of GDP that was attributed to trade was declining is really an excellent illustration of this opportunity cost of fiat that we were discussing. Think about it from the perspective of third world countries, poor countries in the 20th century. These countries where, if you look at the world in 1900, the closer you were to Britain and uh, Northwest Europe, where the Industrial Revolution was starting, the closer you were to there, as well as the US, the more modern capital, more engines you had. And so you had steam engines and then internal combustion engines. And these things completely transformed life. These things gave us enormous amounts of power to dedicate to the things that we do. And that was just a great boon for life everywhere. And so you can see 
the changes in life expectancy and in standards of living, infant mortality, and all kinds of measures of well-being, they witness a dramatic shift around that period when these technologies were being popularized and becoming more and more popular. And you see that it happens as these technologies spread. By the early 20th century, it was really most of Europe and the U.S., and uh, what are today the advanced countries, those were the places that already gotten these engines and these uh, technologies. The rest of the world was just beginning to get them, but in small quantities. And obviously, you can imagine how much benefit it would be to put an engine on a boat and move it somewhere that doesn't have an engine and then have the only engine in town. I mean, just imagine how profitable that is. Be the only person in a town that is able to run a pump with an engine. It's just enormously increasing of the productivity of people. And that's what was happening and what was spreading. People were making more machines, trading them all over the world, buying them and importing them all over the world. And then 1914 happens. And when 1914 happens, all of that begins to slow down. And basically the way that I like to think of it is that if your country hadn't imported industrial capital before 1914, then you were stuck in the 20th century fiat paradigm where your central bank is managing your economy, restricting your ability to save, restricting your ability to accumulate capital, restricting your ability to import and export because of all of the restrictions that they're doing because they're mismanaging the currency. And as a result of all of that, most countries didn't really have a chance to industrialize and accumulate capital properly. And the ones that did relied heavily on trade. It was a massive setback for the majority of the countries of the world. It's a huge, huge, huge cost if you think about just how much more progress and productivity these places could have had if they could just import technology freely from the West. And how much obviously better off people in the West would have been as well, of course, by trading with people in other countries. It all came to a grinding halt in 1914. Hayek draws this distinction between the countries that had hard money and had advanced capitalism, essentially had a gold standard and they had an advanced banking system and they were integrated into global markets and integrated into the gold standard globally and were importing and exporting. These were the maybe 30, 40 countries or so in the early 20th century. And then after that, if your country hadn't built a gold standard central bank, well, then you never basically went on a hard money standard. And then you had all the 1930s and all the inflationism that went on there. And then you had the 1940s and the war and the world was shut down. And then... In the 50s and 60s, you went on a dollar standard where you had the IMF and the World Bank always ready to lend people money whenever they go bankrupt. So you never had governments with a strict, strong budget uh, constraint that forces them to behave properly. And as a result, these countries, if you hadn't had the gold standard before 1914, you had a lot of trouble in the 20th century because you had never accumulated and started with the process of capital accumulation uh, on a uh, gold standard in a capitalist system in an international trade system. It was a huge drain, I think. Yeah, you can see it, it starts to fall. It's going up and it starts to fall in 1914, zigzags around 
I think the general point with it is that you would expect it just to keep going up because if, if transport's improving, distance becomes less important and you would expect that just to grow as a percentage of overall GDP. But it's quite incredible, really, that it, it didn't actually go beyond the levels it was in 1914 until I think it's the late 70s, looks like. Yeah, that's the point where you start to see the beginning of globalization. You get the opening up of China in 1979, and then you get the fall of the Soviet Union in 1990, and then you get various trade agreements. There was an important trade agreement in 1987, and then the Doha round in 2001. I think one sense in which the world has got more libertarian and capitalist is international trade. It definitely has in the last 30 years. Whereas, actually, the, the thing that's confusing is that Western governments have become, my thesis on it is that basically after the Second World War, Western governments became more and more socialist until about the 1970s. So if you look at the actual percentage of government spending as a proportion of total GDP, it goes up rapidly from after the Second, it falls obviously after the Second World War because there's all the military spending. And then it goes up again and again, like over the next 20, 25 years. And it basically stays there from the 1970s and moves around a bit, but basically stays in the same area, like around 40%, 35% in the US, 40% in the UK, 45% in Scandinavia, 50% in France, maybe, like around those kinds of figures. It stays there from the 70s till today. So there's not actually a lot that's changing domestically in terms of the actual state's role in the economy. But what is changing is that these countries in the West are the advanced economies but they're suddenly able to access huge amounts of cheap goods from the rest of the world, from Eastern Europe, from China, from other countries. And my theory on this is that that is actually what has helped to maintain this weird economic era that we've lived in, where there's been all this government spending and inflation has been a lot lower than it was in like the 1970s, for example. My working theory is that there have been like two forces in the world at the domestic level within Western countries, we've basically maintained a high level of socialism since the 1970s, but we have actually liberalised in terms of international trade. That's only got so much mileage in it because if you've got a world in which there's the relatively capitalist West and then suddenly all of these other countries come in and provide this huge economic boost, all the former Soviet states and China then you're going to get a boost as they develop and as they send you cheap stuff and as there's that disparity in living standards. But that's now kind of coming to an end for a number of reasons because those countries are now getting pretty developed and they're not going to do the sort of cheap work we've been used to them doing. And also their demographics are changing quite rapidly. In China, their working age population is now declining. It's been growing for the last 30 years and it's now starting to decline and their number of elderly is going up. So there are lots of reasons to think that there might be a reckoning. We might actually have to come back down to economic reality and deal with the consequences of domestic policy in our own, in Western nations anyway. That's my take on it in terms of the way that this international trade story has influenced the domestic policy in, in Western advanced economies. I broadly agree with you. It's a very good indicator of how things work. But where I might disagree with you is that when you say that now that these poor countries are getting richer, so we might not be gaining, we might not be witnessing these gains from trade in the future. I think 
ultimately the gains from trade are not driven by the fact that your trading partner is poor. They're driven by the fact that specialization, division of labor leads to an increase in productivity. It's a common status and Keynesian misconception to think of it as if a rich country is trading with a poor country, then the rich country is taking advantage of the poor country. But I don't think that is the case. I think that trade is mutually beneficial. The story of Jeff Booth, and we've had Jeff Booth here in the seminar before, I think makes a very compelling point that it is really ultimately technological development that has been driving price deflation over the past uh, few decades. I think he's got a very good, strong case there. Because if you think about it, the extent of deflation happening in electronic and informational goods is startling. You know, things are just constantly getting cheaper and that's allowing people an enormous increase in their productivity. People think that an iPhone is worth $600 or $1,000 and so you pay it and that's $600 to GDP, but they don't really think about it as a tool in terms of how much it increases your productivity. So over the past 15 years that we've had an iPhone, we've had smartphones, all of us have increased our productivity massively. I, I have a lot of stuff that I don't need to own and buy and use and have in my house because it is now all in the phone. You no longer need to buy all kinds of different things that are now essentially apps on your phone. A lot of physical things that you had to buy are now apps. So that's an increase in productivity. And the phone might sound like it's expensive, but if you think about what the alternatives are in terms of what the phone allows you to do, try and do what a smartphone allows you to do with analog alternatives. And you'll see that you'll end up paying a lot more money and you'll only be able to get a small fraction of the things that you can get done with an iPhone, vastly inferior user experience. So if you think about just how much the iPhone has increased living standards, that would have shown up as price deflation. And yet the central banks are out there fighting it. There's always that trap of people thinking that what they're going through is unique historically. And I am wary of that. But I think Jeff Booth does have a very strong point that it, it is different now than what it usually was because we saw what it was like in terms of productivity increases under a gold standard. When you had the gold standard, prices went down by maybe one or 2% per year or so. But that was industrialization. That was engines. The engines were very expensive and very hard to move around. And the returns on industrial technology are enormous compared to agricultural technology. But I think the returns on information technology are even larger. The printing press improved people's lives massively, but the smartphone was an even bigger uh, jump and much more quickly. In the first 15 years of the printing press, I doubt 10,000 people had read books that had came out of printing press. It takes a lot of time to build printing presses back then and to make a lot of copies out of them. But within the first 15 years of the smartphone, billions of people have accessed mountains of information and done an enormous amount of good things for themselves using this technology. So I think Jeff does have a point in that probably deflation right now would, if we had a hard money, it would run probably significantly higher than one or 2%, maybe four, maybe 5% per year, 6% per year. Of course, we should be wary of using these kind of aggregate measures. There's no such thing as 5% inflation or 5% deflation, even 5% price inflation, because it's not like all prices are going to change uniformly. So if we find a way to make TVs much cheaper, then TVs will be 20% cheaper next year. But 
we probably won't find a way of making uh, gold much cheaper. So it's likely we're not going to get a 20% decline in the price of gold every year like we would with TV. And similarly, goods that have a high component of labor in them will likely not decline in price as much because you can't just make as much extra labor. So you would expect the prices of the goods that you have, some of them will drop much faster than the others. And it'll be hard to decide what the average is. But I think it's fair to say that without monetary inflation, we'd have a dropping price level if you wanted to think of it in terms of price levels. But things would just be constantly getting cheaper and people would be saving much more. But yeah, you're absolutely correct in that. Uh, I think the, the globalization is a big part of it as well in terms of the trade. I think it's really helped with this massive increase in global economic growth because this is what would have happened. Like if you think about it from the late 70s until today, this period of massive increase in growth also witnessed massive increases in global productivity because of the spread of trade, because China was importing enormous amounts of capital and China was investing and accumulating enormous amounts of capital. That's what has increased Chinese productivity so much over the last 40 years. And so trade is an enormously important part of that. The danger here is not so much that maybe the Chinese are going to get rich and then we're not going to have trade. The danger is more monetary insanity leads to inflation on the one hand, and or, on the other hand, leads to rising trade barriers. That's really the uh, danger here, if you, if you think about it. So if you start getting more trade barriers, and I got to say, I'm pleasantly surprised considering what I had expected when the whole corona uh, crisis situation started around last year. I would have expected, in my mind, all these shutdowns were going to cause much bigger disruptions to world trade. So far, it hasn't been as disastrous as I had imagined it would be, but they still have time to rise up to my expectations or fall to my expectations. It still might get worse, but I think we haven't seen that much protectionism. And in fact, one slightly maybe positive, depending on how you look at it, one way of looking at it is that the corona situation does not seem to have led the world down the path of more government bitter fights and diplomatic crises and governments going crazy at each other. It hasn't happened yet. It's, it hasn't been like the Great Depression of the 1930s when governments started unloading on each other and closing off borders for one another. Strangely enough, it hasn't happened. We're so used to things being bad and to things getting worse that... Uh, we can't imagine how things could be worse, but I can. <laughs> Here's one way things could actually be worse. Imagine if there was a trade war on top of all of this. Imagine if not only people were restricted from movement, but if goods started getting restricted from movement. I think we'd witness high inflation, definitely. We'd witness enormous social disturbances with rising costs and also disappearing job opportunities. A lot of people work in import sectors all over the world, and that would be massively devastating if you started getting more and more closures. So hopefully that doesn't come to pass. Hopefully. Let's keep our fingers crossed this stays the case. Yeah. Just to clarify my point on the difference between wealth levels, I totally agree with what you're saying in that trade is 100% mutually beneficial. My job used to be working with British companies selling into China. And the thing that's kind of made me nervous about that whole trend is that the reason why I make the point about China getting, getting stronger and getting better at 
technology and stuff. It's because the classic dynamic between the UK and China is the UK sells like high level expertise and technology to China. And then China sells us loads of cheap manufactured goods in, in exchange. And the thing that I'm worried about is that basically the UK and other Western countries have been able to become complacent in the last few decades because they've actually had this like big head start over China. So they can sell them all this great technology and stuff, and then they can get this cheap stuff in return. But the problem we've got is that because countries like the UK and France have said, we're perfectly happy to just shut down our entire economy and pay everyone to stay at home in their front rooms while China is surging away and building everything at a breakneck pace. If you look at the thing we actually sell to China, most of the UK's exports are stuff like cars. They're just going to make those in China. One advantage that, that Europe and America have over China is that they can make large aircraft. But China is now pushing away, making its own larger aircraft. And that will be another thing that goes. Like one of the UK's big exports to China is the Rolls-Royce engines, which have got this special piece of IP in them where they're like the best engines, but that's not going to last forever. So if you look at the big items that are actually allowing the UK to export to China, we already run a huge trade uh, deficit with China because China's coming in and China's own policies devalue its currency. So China's sort of giving stuff away to the rest of the world in exchange for our fiat money. And it's also doing stuff like buying property in the UK and other countries. I totally agree that free trade is mutually beneficial, but I just kind of worry that as the gap closes, there's less and less stuff that these countries that have been sending us loads of cheap stuff are going to actually want to buy in return. That's what makes me say the thing about the trends coming to an end, because I know it's really hard to sell stuff to China if you're a UK company, um, because now their technology is so good that you need to have something really specific. That's kind of where my concern is coming from, rather than a sort of in principle idea about how trade is beneficial for one party over another. I think it's definitely beneficial for both. Yeah, it is. Of course, it's important to remember that the current global trade system, because it is run on fiat, it has a massive distortionary effect. And I think the, the one that you mentioned is very important, which is that China is effectively subsidizing the rest of the world to buy their stuff. When China buys US dollar treasuries, and when China buys dollars and backs its currency with them and keeps buying these more and more and more of them in order to keep the price of its yuan down, effectively what they're doing is they're printing yuans, using them to buy dollars in order to keep the yuan cheap so that they can make their own industries attractive uh, to the rest of the world. They're effectively subsidizing the rest of the world. They're effectively impoverishing the people of China in order to allow the rest of the world to buy things at a cheaper cost. So if they didn't do this, if they'd let their currency float, their currency would appreciate significantly. And yes, that would reduce exports, but would also massively increase the living standard of Chinese people, because now Chinese people's currency's value goes up. So they'll start buying more of the Chinese products. And foreigners will start buying less because Chinese stuff becomes more and more expensive. So there is this aspect of it. And of course, there is the deeper problem and the deeper issue of 
in geopolitics is, is all of those treasuries that China is holding and what happens to them. This isn't a very sustainable arrangement because are they going to just keep buying more and more treasuries forever? As this goes on, the reverse story in the US and in um, uh, the West is a story of I go back and forth on this. I can see both points uh, on the issue of deindustrialization. Some people make the claim that the industrialization is leaving the US and Europe for the same reason that agriculture used to be a big part of their GDP and now it's a small part and industrialization is going to become a smaller part. And ultimately what really matters is the knowledge economy and uh, it's information. The real economy is information economy. And if you think about it, when you're buying an iPhone, an iPhone is one of the most important products that you buy today. The majority of the cost of the iPhone is not going to cover the manufacturing that is happening in China. It is going to cover the intellectual work that uh, happened in um, San Francisco or where their headquarters is in California. If you've got graphic designers and software engineers and people designing the Apple, designing those products, do you really need to have the assembly plant? I'm not saying this in the sense of we don't need the assembly plant workers. I'm saying if it happens in a free market that a country ends up having a majority of its population move toward these higher productivity jobs like designing the iPhone rather than producing the iPhone, I'm not sure that is a bad thing. So I could possibly think that maybe this is um, just a fact of increasing productivity, that there's more productivity, there are higher productivity jobs in this information economy, the design and the engineering rather than the manufacturing. And that's where the richest countries of the world are heading because that's where their workers are heading. Your workers have the best education, the highest levels of human capital, and they're naturally going to gravitate towards the highest paying jobs, which are the highest productivity jobs. And that will end up deindustrializing your economy. I'm not entirely sold on this. I can see the point to some extent, but I think the issue is in this world in which we live today, I don't think this is really the case because it isn't the free market that's driving that deindustrialization. It isn't, it is as natural as the Chinese central bank accumulating treasuries. This is the flip side of it. The reason that the US doesn't manufacture is because China is accumulating treasuries. And so things that are made in China are much cheaper for Americans than things that are made in the US. And so all manufacturing is moving to China. Well, not all, but more and more manufacturing is moving to China. So I'm not so sure that this would be the case if we had a hard money. If we did have a hard money, I would expect we'd see some of this. We'd see a lot of the US and European economies head toward knowledge jobs. But I would imagine you'd still have a lot more manufacturing jobs. I, I don't quite buy the strategic interest story that you need those jobs at home because otherwise you're dependent on foreigners. I don't think this is applicable for the vast majority of industries. It could maybe be applicable for defense industries and some um, important things here and there where you don't want to rely on foreigners perhaps. But I think for the vast majority of goods in an economy, the best way to make yourself robust to circumstances and problems is to have as much global trade as is possible going on so that you have a lot of 
channels for trading with the rest of the world and are able to, if anything goes bad, you have many places where you can get things from. It's not so much that we need industry because we need to have our steel produced domestically. I'm not so sure that's all that important. I don't think the problem here is that industrial jobs are necessarily better. I just think the issue is that a lot of industrial jobs would still exist on a free market, but they don't exist on a free market anymore, not because of the market choosing that they weren't worth it, but because of this fiat imbalance that is uh, taking place because the US dollar is the global reserve currency. And so the US government can just print a lot of that money and hand it out and provide cheap credit to Americans and allow Americans to essentially live off the printed money. This is the driver of the deindustrialization. The fact that Americans can access credit so cheaply and the fact that they have a relatively generous welfare state that allows them to escape the need to work being so pressing. You combine those things, the inflation and the fact that the Chinese are devaluing their currency and the fact that the US government is constantly flooding everybody with credit. You can speculate on real estate. You can speculate on stocks. You can speculate... There are a lot of uh, bubbles going on, and a lot of these bubbles in the U.S., they beat nominal inflation for many people because you're at the front of the cantillonaire uh, effect. You're in the driving seat, so you're able to get the fresh printed money very quickly or the freshly issued credit, and then you can flip real estate or flip stocks or do all kinds of different things and make enough money not to have to work. I think if you cut off the easy money faucet, and you don't have China subsidizing global trade with its easy money faucet, I don't see how a lot of uh, Americans don't end up working blue-collar jobs. If you remove those two interventions in the market, I think a lot of Americans would end up uh, having to work real uh, jobs, and I think those jobs would be attractive. You'd have a higher living standard in China, You'd have a higher wage in China. In the US, you'd have a lower amount of credit available for people. So credit would be harder to come by. You'd have a lower amount of financial bubbles. If you wanted to work, you'd have to get a job. So I think we'd get a much better balance in that Chinese people would consume more, American people would produce more, and both countries' economies would probably benefit from, well, not probably, I'd say definitely, they'd benefit from a dose of hard money, hard medicine, It's very difficult to think about these counterfactuals because there's so many moving parts, but all of this long-winded preface in order to go back to your question and say, I think it's the fiat that's causing these imbalances of trade. So the fact that the US and the UK might not have a lot to export, I see why you would consider that to be the case, but I don't think it's trade that drives it. I think it's fiat that drives it. And the question is, how much has the move toward the information economy been a product of market reality versus fiat reality, basically, the interventions of uh, fiat money and the the impacts of fiat money on the economy. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying about industry. There's not anything inherently good about blue-collar jobs and industry and manufacturing. I guess what I'm saying about China is that I think that China is really going up the value chain and actually doing a lot of high IP stuff, like companies like Huawei doing some very impressive stuff. Same with DJI, and the drones they make. Alibaba, WeChat, these are really good software companies. I agree with the principles. I just think China is actually doing very well in that sort of stuff now. The thing that I'm sort of hesitant about with the technology kind of argument is that 
technology is obviously a product. It's like an endogenous thing rather than an exogenous thing. It's kind of, you need to have an explanation for why technology accelerated. And it could be just an accident that we stumbled across computers. But I do think there's something in the fact that the reason why the US was able to go up the value chain is because they were able to take lots of their cheap manufacturing and do it in China. And so they were able to make the iPhones way cheaper than they would otherwise be able to if they manufacture them in the US and therefore expand their business and therefore innovate faster. So that would be just something that I'd add on historically why we have had the lower inflation. But yeah, I totally agree that there's massive distortions because of the fiat market. In 2007, eight, I think it was, China's trade surplus with the rest of the world accounted for 0.5% of global GDP. So every year it was sending 0.5% of global GDP to the world and just getting pieces of paper in return. And all those goods were flooding into Western markets. I, I agree with your analysis completely. That's not good for the Chinese people. Uh, it's good for exporters. If you're just sending your real stuff overseas and, and only getting paper in return, then uh, that's not good as a long-term arrangement. So yeah, I agree that it's fiat that's causing the strange imbalances that we observe. Yeah, I agree. And I think this is probably going to be the major story of the next five years. Well, who knows? I used to think that that would be the case 10 years ago, and it's still not the major issue. But hearing all of these noises about the Great Reset and a new Bretton Woods, every couple of years you hear people talking about a new Bretton Woods. There's always uh, somebody who's out there trying to get a new Bretton Woods going, obviously, because new Bretton Woods means somebody new gets to print some money. But I think things are kind of coming to a head in this situation. China's GDP has increased massively. Their productivity is going up. It's a matter of time, I think, before they demand and move toward a more financial system that allows them a larger degree of global seniors. They probably don't want to continue to live in this situation where they need to be buying more and more treasuries in order to be trading. And I'm not sure how happy they are with this arrangement. From a U.S. perspective, you could think, well, this is great for them because they're having to develop the industrial capacity. They're encouraging their exports. And in the long run, this is just going to lead to them having a much bigger, much better industrial capacity than we do. We'll be left holding pieces of paper and they'll have all of the world's industry while Americans are still doing degrees in human rights and all these essentially fiat education in the fiat education system. You could think of it that way, but also it's a massive cost for the Chinese people. But again, it, it's a great boon for rich people in China. If you're an industrialist in China, this works great for you because you're exporting more. There is that aspect of it. That the dollar system is beneficial to elites in those countries. Perhaps they have a strategy of using this system for a while and then shifting towards something else because I think they can't be enjoying the reality of just continuing to have to keep their currency down in order to export to the US and the rest of the world. So I suspect with the introduction of the whole central bank digital currency thing and with the yuan now the chinese central bank has essentially introduced their uh, digital currency and it's already operating in some places it's not very big yet um, and it's still restricted so that people can only buy a small amount of it but i can see how 
this can serve as um, a springboard toward a new international reserve currency. The Chinese CBDCs, one thing that can happen is that they start spreading outside of China. And then if they start spreading outside of China, then anybody in the world can get a Chinese CBDC account on their iPhone. And then you can trade with people in China and with other people who use CBDCs internationally and not have to go through the entire U.S. banking system. So you can see that this could be one thing that they're trying to do. And I suspect there is an aspect of that. So you can imagine countries or institutions and businesses that trade extensively with China might benefit from downloading this app and buying some yuan and then running their own Chinese CBDC node. You can see how that happens and you can see how it can take the share from the U.S. dollar. So there is that kind of emergent, decentralized way in which they could undermine the dollar with the central bank digital currencies. But there's also the centralized top-down IMF World Bank way of undermining the dollar, which is probably what we keep hearing about when people talk about the Great Reset and so on. And we've discussed this in an earlier seminar. There's potential for increasing the voting share of China in the IMF and then by extension, increasing the amount of the Chinese uh, currency in the basket behind the SDRs, and then perhaps rebalancing global trade around a central uh, currency issued by the IMF or some uh, supranational entity, perhaps they'll make some new global central bank or something like that. And that entity would issue a CBDC central central banks digital currency it's like a currency that's only accessible for central banks but it's a digital currency so that all the world's central banks can use that currency to back their own domestic cbdc's i think this is probably the way that fiat is going to go next i think this is what the fiat uh, protocol devs are going to choose in their next hard fork I can see this being the scenario that comes along. International central banks get together, the major central banks of the world get together, and basically they create this new currency that is backed by their own currencies and is redeemable in them. And so they have to maintain their own exchange rate against it. And most likely it's going to be the dollar, the euro, and the yuan. The question of what percentage backing each one of them has out of the uh, 100% of the currency is a pretty big question because that essentially reflects how much seniorage you have. I think we could get something like this. The euro, the US dollar, and the yuan as a global central banker, the three central banks put a bunch of their uh, money, a bunch of their digital currencies in this new international central bank or in the IMF. And then the IMF issues central bank digital currency backed by that. Their currency will be backed by those three nations' currencies. And all the other central banks would use that currency to back their own currency and then trade it with one another. And then national central banks can issue their own central bank digital coin backed by that. And so the Brazilian digital real, are you guys doing real now or where are you at in the currency? Is it real? Is that what you call call it, Max? Yes. Real, yeah. I was there in the days of the Novo Cruzeiro. They'd had the Cruzado and the Novo Cruzado, 
and then they moved to the Cruzeiro and the Novo Cruzeiro, right? Is that the sequence? Yeah, that was the worst decade of the country. You were very, very, very lucky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the whole hyperinflation thing. I mean, the, the worst part of history. I remember. I was there. I remember the supermarkets and the people going crazy over the hyperinflation and all the new currencies being introduced all the time. But yeah, so you guys are cool with the new currencies. So <laughs> shouldn't be too much of a problem to have you shift. You know, you've done Cruzado, Novo Cruzado, Cruzeiro, Novo Cruzado. Well, get prepared now for the all new singing and dancing, the all digital Novo Real. And this new Real will be backed by that currency. And so the Brazilian central bank would have, say, $1 trillion worth of that currency. And then it can issue its own digital currency. It can get its own seniorage by issuing a larger number of its own domestic currencies and continuously inflating that to finance the government. And then your local, your Novo or Real or whatever it's going to be called is only workable in Brazil. So you can't send it to an international phone. I guess there has to be some kind of restriction on your ability to send central bank digital currency to other countries, because if there isn't, then basically national central banks are done. If national central banks can't restrict your ability to trade their currency with other countries, then there's no way that they can maintain any premium over the price of those things. So it'll be interesting whether they can get away with it, whether it works or not. Obviously, as somebody who thinks about economics, when I think about it, I just think this can't work. But then again, fiat money also can't work. And look at it turning 50 in a couple of months. This is already very much in play at the early stages. We don't have a new currency. We don't have a digital real. But there is a new thing they introduced, which is alongside the usual transfer from my bank to your bank within the country. Now, the central bank introduced a new technology which is controlled by them, by the central bank. And there is a new kind of electronic transfer with a different name. At the surface, it still looks like I'm sending money to you it's in between my bank and your bank. But in reality, the central bank is doing the whole thing, is collecting data. The central bank knows everything you buy, everything. So far, it's optional. You can send money using that technology if you want. So far, it's optional. There are some advantages. It's much faster. You can do this on weekends and so on, no fees. But we know what this is all about, right? So the next step is gonna be, well, this is no longer optional. <laughs> and they can control pretty much everything. So only among Brazilian banks, we can do that. I think that's the next step. And it is gonna turn out being something along the lines you sketched. Yeah, I think we're going to be heading in that direction. It's everything I was saying so far as speculation is basically the shape of the base layer of Fiat 2.0. So Fiat 1.0 is, well, 
well, I guess 1971 is not really 1.0. 1.0 is 1914. We had about 15 broken launches since then. Maybe 1971 was a Fiat 3.0. 2021 or 2022 or whatever it's whenever it's going to come is going to be let's say call it fiat 4.0 yeah i think the base layer is the question how is fiat going to evolve and what is this going to mean the way that it seems to be going and the way you're describing it is that basically everybody just gets their wallet at their central bank and your central bank has its wallet at the world bank that's a huge thing. I mean, that's basically the Goss Bank. This is basically the communist central bank of the Soviet Union. That's the model. Everybody had a bank account with the same bank. And the implications are devastating for the banking sector, I think. And devastating for people who don't think that 1978 Moscow is their idea of fun. Devastating for people who think that economic calculation is important and for people who understand economics in general and for people who understand the failures of central planning. But it's good for one thing. Everything is good for. It's good for. Bitcoin. 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 It's, it's, I mean, if something can be better than Michael Saylor as an advertisement for Bitcoin, it's going to be what central banks are going to do. If you thought Michael Saylor did a great job, wait until central banks basically bankrupt their banking sectors and give you um, a digital wallet at your local central bank with full surveillance and an easy money that's constantly being inflated. It's kind of really fascinating to see how this is going to go. And you know what? Circling back to the issue of deflation that you discussed, Peter, here's an interesting counterpoint to what I was saying, perhaps. Maybe what makes this sustainable is that governments today have a lot more leeway for seniorage than they did before because of the deflation, because of what Jeff Booth says. Because deflation has gone up so much, because prices are dropping so much, real prices would be dropping in a free market so much. Central banks learned their discipline in the 1980s. In the 1970s, they messed up. In the 1980s, they got their act together and started being a lot more careful about how they manage inflation. And the triumph of the monetarists and the Friedmanites was um, kind of saying that you need to have 2 3% inflation. At that period, 40 years ago, let's assume that deflation was at 2% per year or 3% per year. Per year. Technology was improving by 2 3% per year. And central banks were causing inflation by 2 3% per year. That's about 4 to 6% per year of uh, GDP in seniorage for a government, which is not nothing, that's a lot just from seniorage from inflation. And of course, if you massage the statistics a little bit more, then it's not going to be uh, 2-3% inflation. It might be a little bit more. So you could get yourself a nice 5 6 7 8% and live off of them as a government. And this is what they've done for the past few decades. But maybe now, let's say if deflation is at 6%, let's say, if economic growth is such that every year things would be getting 6% cheaper, then central banks have a lot more leeway and they've got a lot more leeway in essentially expropriating their citizens because now 
they were reared on you get your four to six percent and then you get two to three percent price inflation. Now, if they just do four to six percent, they're going to get negative two inflation or zero inflation. So that means in order to get two to three percent, they need to go six to eight so they can get more inflation. So there's more room for seniorage right now. There's more room for extracting seniorage from their economies because of the increases in productivity, maybe they managed to pull this off, that your central bank currency depreciates every year by 2-3%, and that allows your government to make a good 8-9-10% of GDP in seniorage, and that allows them to finance all of the stupid bullshit that they want to finance, and you keep using their shitcoin. What do you guys think? Saif, why do you think that central banks came more disciplined in the 1980s? Uh, Because the 1970s happened. They didn't substantially increase interest rates. In the first couple of years of the 80s, you had the Volcker hikes. But then afterwards, interest rates are pretty similar in the 1980s, in the US at least, to what they were in the 1970s. And then they continue to fall. So why is it that you say that central banks actually exercise more discipline? Why don't you attribute it to other factors like the globalization? Well, because I guess that's the gold bug in me uh, speaking. Throughout the 1970s, gold went up from $35 to $800. And then in the 1980s, it went down from about $800 by 1990, I think it was around 200 or 300, something like that. So it was still massively up over the price initially in 1970, but it was no longer a threat. Once Volcker raised rates, he managed to stem the danger of a US dollar collapse by preventing the um, rise in the price of gold. Because the way things were going with the continuous rise in the price of gold, well, I mean, actually, now that I think about it, maybe ultimately the rise in the price of gold was not going to go anywhere or do anything because you still can't settle gold internationally without governments and governments weren't going to let you set up an alternative bank account. So it doesn't matter how much you pump gold, you can't pump it much because you can't actually use it as money when you want to trade internationally and more and more of the world is focused around international trade these days. So if that's the thing that maintained the dollar status, then yeah, maybe inflation didn't, um, then maybe it wasn't inflated, but inflation went down. And I don't think so. No, I think inflation, I mean, even price inflation by any reasonable measure was much higher in the 1970s all over the world. I'm not denying that. But the bit I was just questioning, and, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's an incomplete understanding on my part, Inflation was clearly a lot higher in the 70s than the 80s. It came down in the the 80s after the initial couple of years. And people often say, look, inflation came down, central banks became more disciplined. Uh, And that's shown by the fact that inflation came down. But if you look at actual central bank policies in the 1970s and the 1980s, I just shared a a graph showing the um, federal funds rate in the 1970s and 1980s. It went up in like the first two years of the 1980s, the Volcker rate pipes, but then beyond that, it came down again, and it was pretty similar to the levels it was in the 1970s. It wasn't a lot higher, the federal funds rate. And then the federal funds rate continued to fall afterwards. 
So it went to even lower levels than it was in the 1970s. And so my question, I was researching this and I was trying to work out why it was that there was such a difference between the 1970s and 1980s. And I couldn't find a decent explanation in terms of what the central banks actually did. It seems that the only thing they did, because they weren't doing the big QE programs, they were just changing the base rate. But you can see the base rate in terms of the federal funds graph, and it doesn't seem that different in the 80s, which is why I've started to look at these supply side explanations for why inflation came down rather than the actual central bank policy, because it doesn't seem to me that either on the government side or the central bank side, there was actually that much change in policy. Okay, before we get to the supply side, I want to ask you about these, but I think I'll say that the actual rate itself is not all that important. Or let's say the magnitude of the rate is not that important. I think the direction is what's more important. If you're dropping it down, that's likely causing more inflation. If you're raising it, then it's causing more inflation. But what matters here is the direction rather than the magnitude. In other words, 6% could be inflationary if you had 3% and you went and decided to raise it to 6. It could be deflationary if you had 9% and you dropped it to 6. I think it's not so much the magnitude as much as it is the direction. But I'll also say that it's also not so much the federal funds rate itself that controls money creation, money supply. It's largely about lending criteria, about just how much lending the banks are doing. That's what ultimately matters. And so you'd want to look at what's happening with credit creation and comparing that. However, I think you also have another good point, which is that I remember looking at money supply metrics, M2 metrics for the US during that period. (laughs) Yeah. And I, yeah. Do you want to, do you have them? Oh, I, 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 know, I know what you're going to say, which is that they don't slow down. There's no, yeah. there's no actual slowing down of them, which is the other thing I looked at because I was like expecting, to be honest, with my initial assumptions to see that you get to the 80s and you see this slowing down of the monetary expansion and that would be like, all right, this is why inflation came down. I probably have a graph that I can get up, but that's what I, I was anticipating you were going to say, that M2 doesn't really slow down. In this. It does slow no, down in the early 90s slightly but then it keeps going up again. Yeah, I remember looking into this and I remember we, we don't see the uh, uptick. We, we don't see the crash in the 1980s that would be advertised. I, I don't have it on right now, but uh, I remember looking at it. And I think yeah, it doesn't slow down. So that's an interesting question then. Why is it that inflation slowed down in the 1980s? What happened? Hmm. What are your I think it's supp- I think it's supply side factors. So ha- having, as in as in the globalization happening, globalization and technology that we talked about earlier. I just think that when you look at the level of international trade picking up in that graph that I shared earlier, going from like twelve or something, and then just shooting upwards to like twenty five percent where it is today. And then you look at the technological innovations that that enabled and how those were kind of harder to regulate, like all of like IT and stuff like that is sort of harder to capture wealth from. And when you've got industry, you can you know where it is, you can tax it, you can regulate it. And a lot of the nature of IT is that it's unregulated. My working hypothesis, and I'm not claiming to be a 
world expert in this, but my working hypothesis is that you need to look at something external other than the central bank policy in order to explain why there was such a dramatic shift. And it seems to me that entering of China into the global economy, the fall of um, the Berlin Wall and the collapse of communism around the world, and then all of the international trade that that allowed and the international division of labor seem to be... And, and the other thing, actually, demographics. Because if you look at what happened in China, China had this double boost from liberalizing really dramatically in the 1980s. And at the same time, it had this demographic dividend because of their mad policies in the 1950s. They had the Great Leap Forward. They killed uh, about 30 million people who died from the Great Leap Forward. And then they had the one-child policy and restriction of births. They basically ended up having this very high elderly population. And then their dependency ratio just fell really dramatically. It halved between 1980 and, uh, 90, and 2010. And so I think that explains why China's growth was so dramatic, that they not only had this really profound shift in policy, they also had this demographic dividend. And they, at the same time, they were also... This didn't kick in until big time until like the mid 2000s, but they did have the very large deficits as well, trade deficits. So to me, these sorts of factors seem to be the things that are actually really significant and, and, would, and would push down. If you think about it on a common sense level, like living in Britain, when I was growing up, everything was made in China. All the things that like around the house, they're like all the electronics, they're all made in China. And before they were made in Britain or made in Europe. And that's just going to have such a, a, de- a deflationary effect on price. And so to me, I can look at the US numbers. I, I've scratched my head over the, the US mon- monetary figures and the US interest rate figures and tried to say, well, why is it that the, in- the um, inflation rates came down so much? And to me, like, this is just a, a stronger explanation because because even what you were saying about like the rate of change being important from 19. 19- uh, 81 going onwards, the rate of change is always down. It's like a big downward slope in terms of the federal fund rate. And so unless I've missed something, which I may have done, I can't see what it is that's actually changed dramatically in, in Western central bank policy that would have resulted in that deflation. So I tend to go for the fact that it conclude that it's something to do with the factors that I listed. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, that's a good point. There's a huge narrative about the Reagan conservatives and Thatcher introducing free market reforms and fiscal discipline and monetary discipline. And I'm not entirely sure that that holds up. And Rothbard was pretty savage toward the Reagan and Thatcher regimes. Ultimately, if you look at it from a libertarian perspective, who's not interested in the tribal battles of politics where everything the other side does is bad and everything our side does is good, from that perspective, what happened with the Republicans is they cut the spending or, or the tax rights. They cut spending and they cut red tape around a few emotionally charged and around a few industries that were important for their opponents, essentially. So the constituents were more likely to be their opponents' base, labor unions in the UK or something like that. But then there was no decline in spending. There was no decline in debt. And they still gave a yep. ton of money 
to spending, but it was other causes. It was mainly military and other kinds of recipients. They made a big deal out of cutting welfare for poor people, but gave a lot of welfare for corporations. It's stupid fiat politics where money being given to my side is good for the national interest, but money being given to the other side is evil corruption and we must stop it. But yeah, if you look at the numbers, there's not much of a difference. Maybe what was happening was that there was the threat of a collapse. And this is just a scenario that comes to my mind now. Maybe in the 70s, inflation was getting overstated by the fact that people were dumping the dollars because they were buying a lot of gold because they thought gold could upend the dollar. But then the gold market crashed. And then when gold crashed and then gold's price declined, people stopped buying gold and stopped putting their money in gold and they started holding more cash. When gold went up 30X in 10 years and still didn't monetize, then maybe the failure of it to monetize is what made it basically become irrelevant and then people started moving back into the dollar. And without that panic of the 1970s, without people in the 70s, And maybe it's just normalization. You had a lot of inflation in the 70s and people had never experienced that. And then in the 1980s, when they stopped buying gold and stopped buying silver, silver was another big one at that time and silver was even higher back then than it is today. When the Hunt brothers tried to monetize it, but maybe once silver and gold were no longer realistic alternatives and people who tried to monetize them ended up not making out very well, Maybe that then just killed the um, incentive for others to dump the dollar. And I guess domestically and internationally, more and more governments accumulated more and more dollars. And that is what prevented the inflation from showing up too much in prices. And then people get normalized to it. So, you know, after a decade of experiencing 6 10% per year, you find 4 or 5% in the 1980s and it starts to look reasonable and then people start thinking, well, well, this inflation thing is not so bad. I've actually got the figures on the Reagan and Thatcher thing you mentioned because I, I wrote a little piece on this because I also heard, like the basic narrative that everyone says is that Thatcher came in and she made these drastic cuts, a bit like they did with the conservative government from 2010 to 2015. Uh, they said, oh, we're going through this period of austerity, but government spending didn't actually decrease at all. Under Thatcher, we did have a slight decrease in government spending, but it was from 50% of GDP to 45% of GDP by the time she left. So it still was a really high level. And under Reagan, it was actually an increase in federal spending or, or total US government spending, federal and state, from 37 to 39. So... I was looking at this and I was like, how does this fit the narrative that these like conservative leaders came along and they introduced fiscal discipline? It just doesn't bear out in any of the data. That's really what got me onto thinking there must be something else going on here to explain why we have seen such low inflation in the last few decades. So Thatcher was in power, I think, from 1980 until 91. Am I correct? 79 till 90. 71 till 90. 79 till 90, yeah. Yes, that's 11 years. So looking here, when she took over, it was at 49.7. And and it did rise for the first couple of years when she was in office, but then she dropped it. 
And then she left in 1990, at which point it was 44.7. So, yeah, she knocked a nice 5% off of it or 10% of it. Um, yeah, but, <laughs> but it's not really the kind of level of... That's going back to what it was just like in the 60s or something. It's not really the sort of thing that would like give you... Uh, inflation was high in the, in, in the 60s, like reasonably, reasonably high, like three or four percent if i recall correctly but yeah it's like there was quite a profound shift from the 90s like down to two to three percent and then that stayed and it's like why did that happen looking at spending and central bank policy doesn't seem to offer much of an explanation to me yeah i'm with you on that yeah i think we should look into this and maybe have another seminar about it and um look into people who have written on this maybe host some of them for this to have a discussion about it sounds quite interesting. Hey Peter, quick question: Have you looked at how the CPI is calculated? Because I know it's changed over time. So right now, basically, all of the high inflationary items are left out: fuel, housing. I just wonder whether the figures are adjusted for these hedonic adjustments, which have been taking place recently. In the UK, they have changed the figure slightly. They used to have something called the retail price index, which had more of a focus on things like housing. They now use consumer price index and retail price index is slightly higher. Personally, I do think that it's clear that inflation has come down. Like no matter how you, you, you can say that the houses have gone up and stuff like that, that's true. But I think it is true that the cost of living uh, has not risen as much in, in like monetary terms in general as it did during the 70s and maybe before that. So that's my personal view. I, I do think that requires an explanation. I, I think the figures are flawed, but it's like the extent to which they are flawed. I don't think it's just a statistical illusion that the 70s was really inflationary and now it's not. But I do think that was a lot, was a lot higher then. Yeah, I agree. Obviously, the, the inflation is nowhere near as tame as fiat enthusiasts would like us to believe. But uh, when I say that, I mean price inflation specifically. I mean, the 70s were wild. You know, the price of a barrel of oil went from $2 to, I think it was $30 by 1980 or something like that. And it's hovered around an average of around 40 for the past couple of decades, 40, 50, 60. So the amount of change between 1970 and 1980 is much larger than everything that's happened from 80 until 20, almost. Mm. I, I think you're right, Peter, that there is some supply side, but I don't think that explains the whole story because it's not like the world changed so drastically. And it's not like we moved from fiat to Bitcoin in 1980. And there wasn't that big of a transformation. We didn't invent the engine in that year. We didn't invent um, the, the car or anything so drastic. I think th th there is some of it. There's definitely something to that. And I think the growth in trade in China is, is definitely true. But I think it might just simply be something about what was happening in the 1970s and just collapsed in confidence in the currency that led a lot of people to dump the currency very quickly. And that um, accelerated the process of devaluation and price rises and necessitated faster money printing by the central banks. I'm not so sure, but I'm guessing here. I don't know. All right. Well, this has been very interesting. Thank you guys for joining. And uh, I will see you on Thursday. Take care. Thanks, safe. Enjoyed it. Cheers. Take care, guys.
Nej. 